Okay. Thank you, Lucien, very much. Um, it's really a, um, a pleasure and honor for me to um, speak to this seminar on labor history today um, and honor the memory of, of Neil Agat and all the countless other heroes who fought against apartheid um, and use the occasion to discuss um, my book and uh, reprise as well as reflect upon some of its central arguments and questions and hypotheses, particularly in the light of recent and contemporary developments here in South Africa. I've had the chance to, to um, engage in a similar talk in, in, in the United States and North America and, and in uh, Germany and Austria, so this is my first opportunity to do so here in South Africa, and, uh, and I'm very grateful for it. After introducing some of the central questions that I pose, um, I'll also say a few words about case selection and method before turning to hypotheses and arguments. Um, I'll then conclude by offering some very provisional interpretations of South Africa's current conjuncture, but with the uh, um, necessary proviso that I'm sure absolutely everyone in this audience is better informed about um, the specifics of this conjuncture than I am, and so I would welcome further input from, from you, the audience, during the question and answer period. I begin with an anecdote, a true anecdote, from um, almost exactly 100 years ago. Um, flying to South Africa, I came via Zurich, and this uh, anecdote takes place in Zurich um, at a Dadaist cafe, um, and it's related by a, a young Romanian poet. Um, he was a, a teenager at the time, 18 years old, and um, his interlocutor he encounters in this cafe is none other than Vladimir Lenin, um, mere weeks before Lenin seizes power in, in the Soviet Union, in, in Russia at that time. Um, so the, the, the poet, um, Valerio Marku, wants to interrogate Lenin about his defense of war under certain circumstances, um, while at the same time opposing World War I. He asks, how can you expect to foster hatred of this war if you're not in principle against all wars? I thought that as a Bolshevik, you were really a radical thinker and refused to make any compromise with the idea of war. But by recognizing the validity of some wars, you open the door for every opportunity. Each group can find some justification of the particular war of which it approves. I can see that we young people can only count uh, on ourselves. He goes on to relate. Lenin listened to me attentively, his head bent towards me. He moved his chair closer to mine. He must have wondered whether to uh, continue to talk at all to this young boy or not. I somewhat awkwardly remained silent. Your determination to rely on yourselves, Lenin finally replied, is very important. Every man must rely on himself, yet he should also listen to what informed people have to say. I don't know how radical you are, or how radical I am. I am certainly not radical enough. One can never be radical enough. One must always try to be as radical as reality itself. Now, of course, uh, Lenin's themes of open-minded inquiry combined with self-reliance, uh, I think, are as relevant a century later as they were then. But they're also somewhat ironic in light of uh, his subsequent career as the arch-vanguardist and head of the Third International. Um, as well, my, my book's perhaps optimistic thesis that unions have an enduring relevance as political actors today all over the world um, also goes against Lenin's arguments in, in State and Revolution, the, the book he wrote around that time. But as is the case with all theorists, I would argue, we can and we should separate Lenin's methods from the conclusions that he draws from these methods. And of course, my 
work is no exception in this regard. So I'll describe my methods, and I'll describe my conclusions, and you can um, rely on yourself to come to your own conclusions, which I welcome hearing about. Um, my main impulse in um, writing this comparative work was to write against the grain of exceptionalist narratives, which I discovered were, ironically, common to all three countries. So South Africa, especially under apartheid, had its own exceptionalist narrative as the African country that was different from all the others. But Germany has a very famous uh, exceptionalist narrative called the Sonderweg, um, explaining kind of in opposite form why it was that it descended into fascism and genocide. And supposedly this was due to particular characteristics that were utterly different from uh, the experience of any other country in the world. And then the United States has its own exceptionalist narrative as being the exceptionally great country, um, um, which, as I argue, uh, has sometimes degenerated into a discourse not just of exceptionalism but of exemptionalism, that the usual moral and ethical considerations by which countries have to uh, abide on the world stage do not apply to the United States. And we saw this most uh, graphically expressed during the Iraq War. So my, my uh, gut instinct against these various exceptionalisms um, was a guiding impulse behind assembling these cases. Um, but there were other pieces of evidence as well um, that, that I um, picked up on. And they all, in one respect or another, had to do with the particular trajectory of each country's um, respective labor movement. I begin with a question which has preoccupied a lot of uh, commentators and activists in the United States, which is what explains the decline of the US labor movement? Um, I mean, in, in many respects, this decline seems to be self-evident, that the uh, union density rate, rate to which workers belong to unions, has declined for over 40 years. Um, the strike rate, in terms of size and duration, has declined for an even longer period of time. Um, and, of course, uh, the number of workers belonging to unions has also gone into absolute decline. Um, in addition, uh, the rate of decline is most dramatic in the private sector, so that if you remove the public sector workers, then um, the United States has perhaps the lowest level of union density in the entire OECD, the, the club of rich comp uh, countries all over the world. So this is a puzzle, to say the very least. Um, it's true, of course, that uh, unions, union density has declined for most other OECD states um, over the past several decades, but nowhere else has this decline been as protracted or as severe. Um, so does that not mean, therefore, that the United States is an exceptional case? But as I've said, I'm suspicious of arguments of exceptionalism, so I investigated further. Um, I should point out as well that um, when I began writing this book, this particular theme was not very fashionable. Um, from a purely liberal perspective of democracy, a liberal, pluralistic, procedural uh, perspective that emphasizes um, institutions rather than movements, um, this was not a particularly important question to address. The most common short answer is um, density is declining because U.S. workers do not want to join unions and engage in class-based politics, uh, such as strikes or other forms of mobilization. They simply have other fish to fry. However, for those of us who perhaps intuitively understand the relationship between labor movements and democratization as neither coincidental nor contradictory, but actually mutually constitutive, U.S. labor movement decline is a cause of fundamental concern, connected with several other aspects of contemporary U.S. politics um, of equal concern. As Thomas Piketty, among many others, have, has observed, 
current rates of income and wealth inequality match or exceed previous extremes from the late 19th and early 20th century Gilded Age, when democratic institutions and practices were less, supposedly less established than they are today. Also, not coincidental, is the extremely low levels of trust that the US electorate has for its own government. Reams of social science literature confirm the positive correlation between trust in government and levels of societal equality. And historically, unions have helped achieve both by redistributing a usually modest portion of employers and owners' profits and promoting collective action toward more egalitarian social policies. But what's a particular concern to those who see labor movements as a key element of the solution is that during this most recent economic crisis, for the first time ever in more than 80 years of US polling data on this particular question, more US respondents had a negative than a positive view of unions for the first time, including during the Great Depression. A major part of US unions' current weakness is this image and standing they hold for the broader public, um, a standing which perhaps only hard-earned political victories will strengthen, but yet at the very precise moment when the chances of such victories appear weaker than they ever have been before. As I quote a leading economic historian, this is but one example of a commonly observed paradox that precisely when cooperation appears most necessary, it is psychologically most improbable. Um, this is a, a West German economic historian, Werner Plumpe, and he uses it in his analysis of the failure of West Germany's uh, interwar experiment with company-level co-determination. For those of you who, who aren't familiar, although this word has entered into the South African um, discursive vocabulary, co-determination is the ability of all employees of a given workplace to elect representatives on a works council. So that's called um, firm-level co-determination. And then they can also elect representatives on the supervisory board. Um, so there's, there's this workplace level and there's company level co-determination and together um, they are uh, seen as or at least by their defenders they're touted as uh, examples of, of what is called economic democracy that uh, workers can actually use their votes to help determine what company policy will be how working conditions will be structured what um, pay and benefit uh, criteria should be like, and so on. I can get back to the practice and the, and the actual outcomes more in question and answer. Um, what I want to point out is uh, this is another uh, uh, example of, of a perhaps unprecedented institutional outcome. Although you have works councils in other parts of Europe, um, nowhere do you have the rights as, as highly articulated as you do in Germany. But again, um, if you look closely into the history, you find that um, this outcome was, was contingent and that the conditions that gave rise to it were found to be in other cases as well. In fact, I opened the book with um, a comparison of three uh, episodes of, of syndicalist worker uprising that followed immediately uh, World War I. The first one was um, the so-called Red Ruhr conflict in Germany in the industrial coal, and, uh, coal mining and steel belt of, of the Ruhrgebiet, the Ruhr River Valley. And um, it's the biggest of the three. There were, there were hundreds of um, coal miners and, and steel workers and others who took up arms uh, to defend themselves and also uh, at one point against government troops and the, the conflict lasted several days and um, hundreds were killed. It was the biggest insurrection in German history at the time. Um, about a year later of course was South Africa's Rand Rebellion of which about which I'm sure you're all familiar. Um, and then less than a year than that, after that, was 
the Battle of Blair Mountain in the United States. And that also was the largest insurrection in US labor history up, up to that time. Um, coal miners who had been f fighting desperately to maintain uh, the existence of their union and uh, the existence of the bargaining contract that they had just achieved uh, got wind of the news that whole new coal fields would be opened up in uh, the southern part of uh, the state of West Virginia um, to non-union workers. And so you can imagine that they thought uh, everything that they'd, that they'd been struggling for over the previous two generations would be lost in an instant. So they took up arms, went to these um, new coal fields and tried to organize uh, the workers and to impose unions onto the employers. Um, as happened in Germany, as happened in South Africa, um, not just the employers but also the state uh, mercilessly crushed the uprising um, in the U.S. case, as well as in the South African case, you know, using aerial bombardment to put the workers down. And, um, and it was the bloodiest conflict in labor history, uh, arguably up until that time. So here we have um, the largest capitalist country in North America, the largest, or in the Americas, the largest in Europe, and the largest in Africa, um, each with an immense uh, syndicalist conflict in the key industries happening at more or less the same time. Um, participants include a large number of um, migrant workers um, and the conflicts are not just repressed by the state but the governments of these states are all supposedly on the center left which I think is no coincidence. Um, there are, of course, also major differences, uh, not just geography and culture and history, but also in um, the immediate resolution of the conflicts and the longer-term trajectories. So this overlapping zone of similarity and uh, difference, I think, is a fruitful way of exploring um, the main theoretical question that I pose, and that is, what really is the nature of labor movement power? Um, I find uh, a very common answer to the question, uh, it's different in every context, completely unsatisfactory. Uh, first of all, how can you say definitively that it's different in every context unless you actually compare every single context? And by context, I don't just mean geographical context. It also means temporal context. So that means that if you say every single context is different, that means South Africa in 2016 is completely different from South Africa in 2015. Is that true? Um, we, can, we can debate the point. Um, so there's always uh, an overlap of, of uh, continuity and change. But just as the comparative method suggests there's no absolutely unique phenomenon in the social world, so we would expect labor movements to bear at least a vague family resemblance to each other, just as states, wars, and political demonstrations do. Um, these are the bread and butter of, of comparative social science. Um, so many theories abound which provide contrasting answers to the question of what actually labor movement power is. is. Um, and I discuss these in very great detail in the book. Um, perhaps the most dominant theory in Europe, power resource theory, um, also prevalent in, in labor relations uh, all over the world, argues from a Weberian perspective that labor movement power is defined by resources. Above all, unions, union dues, and the uh, party political allies that unions are able to make. And um, workers can use these, these power resources to force employers to make concessions regarding wages, policies, and so on, that they otherwise would not make. Classic Weberian uh, definition, and in its own terms, quite plausible. Except for the fact that it begs the prior question of what power these movements exercised 
before uh, they organized in unions and before they had allied political parties. It's the same movement. Um, when they cross this, this threshold of institutionalization, do things become completely different? Or again, is there an overlap of change and continuity? So, um, departing from this to some extent, more recent uh, theories that, that we can define as employer-centered propose almost the opposite thesis, that especially with respect to welfare policy, it is always the employer's preferences, not those of their workers, which are truly decisive. But this begs another prior question. Why would employers uh, show the same shift across a range of cases from initial repression of workers to engagement with them? Of course, sometimes this goes back to repression, as we've seen here in South Africa. Um, but this initial shift is a completely noteworthy phenomenon uh, throughout the world, all over the world, the Ameri Americas, Asia, Europe, and Africa. Okay. Yet other theoretical perspectives argue that the sphere of production politics is the key, and indeed varieties of capitalism literature borrows uh, from each of these to suggest that workers no less than capitalist interests are best realized in distinct geographically specific institutional ensembles. In my book, I argue that these seemingly contending theories are not in themselves completely wrong, but they are incomplete since they capture only certain facets of the larger puzzle. Um, reading the theories together and uh, synthesizing them to a certain extent, I argue that labor movement power is realized analogous perhaps to the flow of electric current when it moves from one situation or institution or context to another. Following the French theorist Bruno Latour, I term this phenomenon power as translation, arguing that labor movement power is lost in isolation but found in translation. What do I mean by that? I mean that if uh, labor movements develop a certain repertoire of struggle or a certain modus operandi of exercising power in one domain, uh, it can never be secure unless they translate it to a different domain. Um, there are two large categories of domain in particular that I think are particularly salient in this regard. There's um, the structural domain of the workplace, of uh, global commodity chains, of uh, systems of production. And then there's the associ associational domain of unions, confederations, allies, and perhaps most important, the communities in which workers live and uh, reproduce their lives. Now, some social theorists um, whose work I greatly respect, such as the sociologist Beverly Silver, sees a secular trend all over the world in which the previously predominant Marxian work workplace-based struggles against exploitation are progressively yielding to struggles associated with Karl Polanyi, um, so-called Polanyian struggles against commodification rooted in workers' associational power. Um, I think, however, that the actual picture is more complex, that um, what we actually witness these days is that these two domains are becoming ever more tightly enmeshed. Um, and this is because in the course of responding to um, the two major strategies of capital's reproduction, uh, capital's, in, in David Harvey's terms, the spatial fix and the temporal fix, um, the, the strategies of, of capital itself are becoming intermeshed, what Harvey calls a spatio-temporal fix. Uh, but he uses this term in a very concrete way. It's, it's uh, two-sided and ironic. Because as soon as capital thinks that it can impose a solution 
in one domain, it exacerbates a problem in another domain. Um, and for this reason, labor movements respond by seizing the opportunities opened up by the, the greater domain of, of uh, crisis-risen uh, strategy that, that capital has just imposed. So far from seeing this as, as a completely hopeless struggle in which employers always have the upper hand, in which uh, you know, the workers are inevitably playing this hopeless game of catch-up where they're inevitably uh, engaged in, in regressive uh, battles along issues of uh, race, ethnicity, gender, nation. Um, I actually think that the opportunities for collective solidaristic action open up uh, ever wider. So, um, if there's any truth to this hunch at all, then the act of translating power from one context to another is not only a, move, uh, a means for labor movements to realize specific incremental ends, it's also, I would argue, constitutive of their processes of identity formation. It's how they come to see themselves as who they are. So, borrowing from the classic sociological analysis of Klaus Hofer and Helmut Wiesenthal, their argument in their article, The logic, uh, Two Logics of Collective Action, uh, itself indebted to Habermas, they argue that employers' logic of collective action is monological. It's all about profit um, and wealth. And workers, by contrast, is dialogical, concerned about consensus formation. Um, I agree with this uh, to a substantial extent, showing how, in all three cases, uh, state policy of the early 20th century conformed with the dominant interests and the main strategies of the leading firms of each country. So in uh, South Africa, of course, at the time, it's Anglo-American Corporation. In Germany, it's Thyssen Steel Corporation. And in the US, it's the US Steel Corporation. Um, furthermore, I argue that these firms use employer associations to not only thoroughly marginalize worker interests and voice, but also to sideline other smaller employ uh, employers, or you know, what's um, Marxist economists refer to as factions of capital. Um, and these smaller fractions of capital are typically more amenable to strategies of cooperation with workers. So they get sidelined in the process as well. Um, so there's a parallel patterns of corporate capitalist domination, um, which inscribe the patterns of broader domination and resistance in all three countries over the, uh, from most of the past century. Um, and these patterns provide abiding clues about thinking about resistance and transformation in this century. However, you might argue, as many of my readers have, if the true nature of power and empowerment is that it uh, flows so long as it's constantly rearticulated, what then explains comparative US decline? After all, the German labor movement has, for the most part, remained fairly stable uh, in its density levels and degree of power and influence, at least since World War II. And South Africa's black majority workforce has gone from um, extreme levels of employer repression um, with the full backing of the apartheid state to a position of quite substantial gains in union membership, in density, in wages, welfare measures, and perhaps even a margin of influence in the government. So uh, is it not possible to let exceptionalism in through the back door? Um, my argument to this question takes up the second half of the book and has three components. Uh, first, although I argue that power does flow, institutional circuit breakers can inhibit this process. And nowhere is this more true than in the sphere of labor law. 
Um, why is this the case? So I discussed various theories of, of what's called juridification, the process by which law is articulated. And I dig deep into the history of the development of labor law in all three contexts. And what I find is that um, at the moment of democratization in Germany, Weimar labor law recognized the rights to organize for the first time, uh, establishing co-determination rights, um, which were subsequently hijacked by the Nazi state, um, but revived in the post-war period. But these laws said nothing about who was and was not a worker. Um, and in the process of the hijacking, it was not a question of who was and was not a worker. It was a question of who was and was not a German, uh, a member of, of the Volksgemeinschaft, a member of the race, in other words. Um, similarly, in South Africa, um, the process of labor law articulation under the colonial period and under the apartheid period it was, of course, explicitly racially inflected. There was this distinction between employees and, uh, and workers. In the United States, it was different. The law adjudicated to itself the question of who was and was not a worker and how boundaries between uh, different workforce domains, different unions, different bargaining units could be determined. Workers were denied that power themselves. So ironically, and it's a fairly substantial irony, the much more extreme repression of the South African case, for example, uh, opened wide open the possibility that in struggling against the apartheid state, the question of who gets to define who the worker is and who she gets, which union she gets to join or not is left untouched. And this wasn't the case in the, in the US. So the very identity of worker became progressively fragmented in the US in, in the period after World War II, whereas it became progressively consolidated in the South African case. Uh, I think this is not an exceptionalist argument for various reasons. Um, one of them is that this same uh, particular trajectory of juridification could indeed still occur in South Africa and could indeed still occur in Germany, and there's a few nascent signs uh, that this is the case. Um, it's not inevitably going to happen. Um, there are clear strategies of resistance against it, and there are repertories of, of struggle that can be drawn upon. Um, but my hunch, of course, is that only by translating power will those outcomes be thwarted. Um, and another part of my argument is that actually there are substantial elements of, of commonality in the experience of, of workers in all three countries. One of the most important of which is um, the use of unfree labor. Now, I don't need to tell you in this room that uh, the compound system is in a certain sense the epitome of unfree labor. Uh, and I'm sure that many of you will be able to make analogies between the compound system and uh, the use of, of slave labor or concentration camp labor in Germany. It's not just that workers don't have any rights. It's that they don't have any control over their own bodies. Right? There's complete control is imposed upon the very body of the worker. Um, so they're as, as helpless as, as slaves, even though uh, the legal system uh, doesn't call them slaves. It calls them autonomous individuals. Um, you actually have the... Not only do you have the exact same situation in U.S. labor history, um, but what was... Uh, kind of something that was surprised to me was just how widespread that phenomenon is of the use of prison labor. 
uh, it was the dominant form of labor relations for much of the U.S. South after the Civil War. The dominant form in manufacturing industries, in the steel industry, and above all in agriculture. One of the best books on this topic takes its title from uh, a quotation of an employer at a deposition of uh, the death of a member of his workforce. And the title of the book is One Dies, Get Another. Because it was the easiest thing in the world to uh, literally work these these, uh, prison workers to death and then go back to the prison and dragoon uh, another set of workers. And when prison populations went low, it was the easiest thing in the world because the local uh, police and judiciary were working hand in glove with employers. It's the easiest thing to simply change the law and say that if you're found uh, walking after sunset, then that was a, a criminal offense and you could be imprisoned. And of course, once you find yourself inside one of these prisons, it's not likely you're going to come out. Um, just as the average lifespan of uh, South African miners for most of the, I think much, if not most of the 20th century, was about 10 years. Right? You begin working in the gold mines, you have about 10 years of working life to be left, your lungs get torn to shreds, then you go back to uh, your, your location or your homeland, and you go back to die. Um, but you have the same pattern in, in the US. Prison, prison laborers rarely lived longer than 10 years after incarceration. Um, often it was, it was lower than that. So there is actually a, a common sphere of, of uh, labor repression. And um, the use of prison labor in the US uh, declined for much of the 20th century. And then after the 1970s, it began to increase again. And it's been on the rise for the past couple of decades. The US prison population is the biggest, not just in terms of percentage of the overall population, but in absolute numbers in the world. It's bigger than the, prison pop- the entire prison population of China. It's bigger than the entire prison population of India, right? countries that are four times as, as populous. Um, so this represents a considerable uh, area of concern for, for all kinds of, of interests, but particularly uh, labor movements, I would say. So um, there's a, a, a legal component of my argument. There is um, a temporal component of my argument, um, which is that with the more recent ex- experience of repression, the German and South African workers um, were able to translate power more effectively um, through, commu- through uh, social movement unionism in South Africa from the Durban strikes of 1973 uh, into the Congress period of, of UDF and MDM, and in South Africa through engagement at, with workplace politics at the, at the co-determination level. Um, so there was a degree of and quality of autonomous action in these cases that was absent in the US case. But the third part of um, my answer to this question is that, at least to a certain extent, the question is misstated. Um, the German labor movement's stable power and influence since World War II, uh, South Africa's Cosato unions, gains in, in the indices I've mentioned, density, wages, welfare, um, are themselves the results of, of prior struggles of translating power and should not be equated with the permanent condition of power's translation in itself. In other words, you can't rest on your laurels. Okay? Um, if labor movements do this, if they rest on their laurels, and there's actually worrying signs in, in both cases that they uh, might be doing so, 
then inevitably they're going to suffer setbacks. Or maybe this process is already underway. Um, the larger point is, of course, that all movements have to constantly mobilize in the face of current challenges. But to put the same point somewhat more positively, the current seemingly bleak prospects of the US movement, with its record low density and strike rates, may not be as bleak as they appear, um, since these elements are symptoms of past failures, um, and they need not be current obstacles to uh, current struggles to translate power. And in fact, there are some glimmering signs of hope in the recent minimum wage and living wage struggles, no less than the Black Lives Matter movement uh, against the many manifestations of structural racism in the US today. Um, in fact, it's no coincidence that the politics of austerity have plagued all three countries, as this has become the dominant means the world over for bailing out finance from the very crises that it generates and socializing the damage to everyone else. But it would be a mistake to counter the failures of monetarism, I argue, in my conclusion of the book, <coughs> by simply repeating the very Keynesianism whose contradictions paved the rise to monetarism in the first place. Right? We have to go back further. We have to scrutinize sort of the founding moment of Keynesianism and uh, ask ourselves what went wrong. I can give you a provisional answer to that question, uh, but one that's certainly open to debate. <coughs> I think Keynes was correct to argue that investment decisions are not based on current savings levels, but on future profit expectations. However, he evaded the political question of how the initial investment would be financed because banks always respond to anticipated reductions in liquidity with higher interest rates, which in turn increase capital costs and thereby choke off the investment that pump priming is meant to achieve. So once pump priming, pump prime, pump priming is already underway, then for a period of time, Keynesianism can work. Um, and, and then of course it has to address uh, the, the, the consequences of its own transformation. But how does pump priming, pump priming begin? Uh, and moreover, in the current context where the initial conditions which made it much more likely, uh, overwhelmingly national economies, high degrees of currency control, uh, you know, low levels of, of um, product market integration and so on, none of which exist today, um, how, how can you revive Keynesianism under these circumstances? And you know, I argue that, that uh, as a mere repeat, you cannot. Uh, moves by the central state authorities to impose stringent capital controls, nationalize key industries, default on debt, um, can have the perverse effect of accelerating capital flight. The relevance of the solution to this problem, of course, extends considerably beyond the three uh, countries that I discussed to the entire world. Um, I can offer some provisional potential solutions beyond this. Um, perhaps the best known is um, the so-called Rehm-Meidner Wage Earner Fund Plan, which was enacted in Sweden in the 1980s, but proposed by the German Labour Confederation in the 1950s because uh, the, the theorist behind it, Meidner, was a German who went into exile and in Sweden during World War II. And uh, in this scheme, every year, fairly large corporations above a certain threshold um, would be obliged to issue shares worth 20% of their profits to invest in social welf welfare initiatives um, that would be uh, determined democratically by the workers themselves and their neighborhoods and localities. Um, and, of course, this is another uh, battle of, of balance of forces. It's something which can happen once um, labor movements attain a certain degree of, of power and influence. Um, another possibility is, is uh, a Caldor-style consumption tax on the difference between income and savings investments, 
Um, this is an idea which is again coming into currency uh, all over the world because of the extreme degree of capital flight and tax evasion that's occurring all over the world. Um, which are the principal guilty culprits uh, for, for providing tax havens in the world today? I ask if, if I say the word tax haven, what entity comes to mind? Might say Switzerland, might say Canary, uh, Cayman Islands, right? Might say, uh, I don't know, uh, what's the South China Sea Island? Um, what am I thinking of here? The former Portuguese colony. I'm sorry? Macau. Macau, thank you. It's none of these, though. It's actually the United States. Mm. Um, <laughs> and indeed, there are differences within the United States. So some states, incredible though this may sound, it's true, some states like um, Nebraska do not require any uh, evidence of the true identity of the... Um, the people setting up uh, corporations and business accounts. They require no evidence whatsoever. Saying, go ahead, <laughs> cheat, see if we care. You know, lie to us, be our guest. Um, and of course, if you leave the door wide open like that, then, then that's what uh, financial interests the world over do. And the Cayman Islands, by, con by comparison, by the way, this is, this is true, are, are Angels of probity in comparison. They comply to cutting edge uh, global governance uh, requirements on, on uh, reporting and accountability. So let's give the Cayman Islands a break and, and start talking about Nebraska and Wyoming and Delaware and, and states like this in, in the United States. Um, but this is a huge issue and of course it's a collective action issue among other things um, that, that pressure needs to be put to bear on the, the most egregious uh, exemplars. Um, okay, um, I'd like to just conclude with a discussion about um, a sort of historical argument that's intrinsic in, in, in the book's argument. Um, some of you may be familiar with um, the idea uh, of the advantages of backwardness that the Soviet economist Alexander Gershenkron articulated. And the idea is that um, countries that are relatively backward in the world economy uh, can engage in, in collective learning, can import best practice um, from all over the world. And usually this entails a transformation of the articulation of the state. Um, but if they do this, then they leapfrog the so-called pioneer countries. Uh, and so then they can become cutting edge. So, so you might have a, a, a country which uh, was, was uh, disadvantageously placed in the world economy and um, didn't build a rail network, but then uh, can build airports to, to leapfrog the need to have uh, a rail system or things of this kind. Um, what's implicit in my argument is that actually this idea of advantages of backwardness can also apply to labor movements. There can be collective trans-regional learning um, in a variety of domains um, which labor movements can draw upon in order to pose more effective challenges to uh, employers in the state. This could be, for example, in the way in which constitutions are articulated, in the content of social justice campaigns, in um, worldwide real-time technological change and, and its associated learning and adaptation, elements of global integration. Um, moreover, I agree that um, because waves of democratization and economic crisis occur with ever greater frequency, they increasingly coincide with an individual's human memory. They're actually lived experiences in our lives. Whereas before, historical structures might seem uh, immense, ineffable, beyond human agency, 
uh, in the nature of, of world historical time, they get broken down into elements of collective learning and thereby potential tools for collective liberation. Um, however, this does require an effective degree of um, collective memory as well. Perhaps um, some students will have encountered um, the famous oft-quoted um, passage by um, the French theorist Ernst Renard, Qu'est-ce qu'une nation? What is the nation? Uh, and he provides an answer as follows. Forgetting, I would say, even historical error is an essential factor in the creation of a nation. And it is for this reason that the progress of historical studies often poses a threat to nationality. Historical inquiry, in effect, throws light on the violent acts that have taken place at the origin of every political formation, even those that have the most benevolent of consequences. <clears throat> Unity is always brutally established. The essence of a nation is that all of its individual members have a great deal in common and also that they have forgotten many things. These are the essential conditions of being a people, having common glories in the past and a will to continue them in the present, having made great things together and wishing to make them again. One loves in proportion to the sacrifices that one has committed and the troubles that one has suffered. A nation is therefore a great solidarity constituted by the feeling of sacrifices made and those that one is still disposed to make. It presupposes a past but is reiterated in the present by a tangible fact, consent, the clearly expressed desire to continue a common life. A nation's existence is, please excuse the metaphor, a daily plebiscite, just as an individual's existence is perpetual affirmation of life. I find this problematic. Um, I'll offer, by contrast, another address, this one from the Eastern Cape several decades later, and one that I think is uncannily prescient in several respects and deserves to be as well known. The speaker is referring to a strike of nurses that has just taken place. The nurses' strike should be viewed as part of a broad struggle and not as an isolated incident. I said last year that we should not fear victimization. I still say so today. We must fight for freedom, for the right to call our souls our own, and we must pay the price. The nurses have paid the price. I'm truly grieved that their careers, the careers of so many of our women, should have been ruined in this fashion. But the price of freedom is blood, toil, and tears. This consolation I have, however, that Africa never forgets. And these martyrs of freedom, these young and budding women, will be remembered and honored when Africa comes into her own. A word to those who are remaining behind. You have seen by now what education means to us, the identification of ourselves with the masses. Education to us means service to Africa. Who said these words? Yes. Right, it's time. Front of the class. Very good. Yeah. It's nice to be in an audience like this. Because most of the time when I speak, people don't know the, the answer. So, um, I think it's important to remember the revival of, of this connection with liberation and education through solidarity uh, in the present context. Um, and the theme, of course, has intermittently reappeared throughout the long history of anti-colonial and anti-apartheid struggle. Um, even in the seemingly darkest hours of these struggles, such as during the 1980s, when the slogan, Liberation Before Education, was taken up with great and cynical alacrity by the local and international press as proof positive of their Afro-pessimism. Although the apartheid doctrine of total onslaught arguably made necessary the goals of making South Africa ungovernable and apartheid unworkable in significant respects, 
some perhaps inevitably more strategically and morally defensible than others. A more significant and perhaps enduring legacy is that South Africans made themselves self-governable. The UDF and MDM showed that self-organization and solidarity were not contradictory, but complementary goals. As your Rhodes University colleague Raymond Sutner observed of this period, people were often organized at a street and block level, and they took control of their own lives, sometimes in a way that was more satisfactory than or filled a vacuum left by the apartheid authorities that had been driven out of the townships. But he goes on to ask what I think is a crucial question. While the 1980s manifested the emergence of the popular in ways that had never been seen before, how is it that the mass, um, mass presence, that mass presence, has been allowed to disappear in the current period? He was writing just a few years ago. My sense is that from the late 1980s, the subjective capacity or agency of the masses or the people was displaced as self-actors, subjects in their own right, first by the people's movement represented by the leadership, later by the, quote, people's government, assumed to represent the popular. It would be interesting to consider to what extent this has had a bearing on current political instability and widespread expressions of unrest. So to what extent? Um, I'm not well-placed to offer any definitive answers to that question. My hunch is that the near disappearance of self-governing impulses is bound up with the waves of collective forgetting taking place over the past two to three decades in South Africa. I suspect that these waves' roots are varied and complex. Partly, perhaps, they stem from many activists' association of struggle with trauma, this was an immensely painful period in the lives of many activists, and they desperately want to forget. And, as I've had many conversations uh, bear out, shield their children from these painful memories, however difficult um, forgetting might be. As well, the sheer messy complexity of this period and the lingering ambiguities of its only partial resolution do not readily lend themselves to modes of collective remembering that even as ambitious and wide-ranging an exercise as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is able to achieve. The younger generation, for its part, perhaps for your part, may be impatient with some of the more ritualized forms of collective memory that have predominated in the post-94 period and are eager to assert themselves and exercise freedom of finding their own voices and their own identities. From Renan's perspective, these, of course, would be viewed as a good thing, but I am much more inclined to endorse Sabukwe's model of solidaristic remembering. The reasons go back to my definition of the successful translations of power. Uh, and here I borrow from a famous essay called The Task of the Translator by the literary theorist Walter Benjamin. As with literature, there are better or worse, more or less successful translations of power the less successful ones preserve or inaccurately transmit the inessential content and compromised institutional form of the original. The present bears both the scars as well as the unrealized promise of past struggles. The task of translators of power, especially labor movement translators of power, is to release in their own language of current struggle the essence of struggle under the spell of their immediate past that's imprisoned in these incomplete forms of empowerment bequeathed by history. So in my view, the lessons of struggle are ind indispensable. Without them, without a deeper historical field of vision, I suspect current struggles will fail to realize their true potential. Um, how am I doing for time? Okay. So, so um, by way of example of, of forgetting, which, which is problematic, I want to just simply observe that um, the hashtag movements, roads must fall, fees must fall, um, don't have as their, their counterpoint, hashtag uh, ESCOM must fall, or nukes must fall. 
Um, but ESCOM, of course, is a product, is, is actually both the, the uh, midwife of the apartheid state and uh, its successful reproducer uh, in the contemporary period. And the nuclear power plants are going to shackle the country uh, at a level of indebtedness that will never enable the state to fully uh, lower fees and make education available for all. Um, protesters, however, haven't made these connections yet, so far as I, I know. Um, so this is part of the current challenge we face. Thank you. <laughs>